I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. America has always prided itself on being a democracy. We have stood in stark comparison to the monarchical oligarchy our founders fought against and paid with so many lives to be free from. And more recently, as compared with the ugly, brutal fascism we successfully defeated in the Second World War. We Americans have democracy as the foundation of our very identity as a republic. It is who we are, and we have been justifiably quite proud. But since the presidency of Ronald Reagan, we have moved steadily away from democracy. It's being replaced with a new oligarchy. Instead of government of, by, and for the people, today's government works nearly exclusively of, by, and for the very richest among us. As Gore Vidal noted so long ago, we have socialism for the richest and rough individualism for everybody else. Even working-class Republicans in the early 21st century expressed anger that this government is not really our government anymore. The powers that be have been remarkably successful in convincing us, the mere citizens of America, that we are indeed powerless. There's nothing we can do. Our voices don't matter. But way too many of us have bought into that line. It's demonstrably not true. So many examples of grassroots activism successfully achieving the goals. Politicians, as we know, are generally quite risk-averse. They only act when they see that it's safe for them. They need to see clear public sentiment before sticking their necks out. The most famous illustration of this point is when A. Philip Randolph, head of the all-black sleeping car porters union, met with President Roosevelt calling on desegregation in federal employment. The story is is that FDR said, I agree with you. I want to do it. Now go out there and make me do it. And you know what? It worked. Grassroots activism has certainly been frustrated, but there's reason to think it is being revitalized. We're going to talk about the rebirth of grassroots activism two parts today. First part is with Hedrick Smith, Pulitzer Prize winning former New York Times reporter, editor, and Emmy Award winning producer and correspondent. His latest book is titled Who Stole the American Dream? And Hedrick Smith has a new PBS documentary, The Democracy Rebellion, now being aired in various markets across the country. And it shows how grassroots citizens' movements are winning victories for political reform town by town, state by state. Hedrick Smith, thanks so much for being with us. Well, please tell us about the genesis of this new documentary, Democracy Rebellion. What is its goal? How did it come about? And how was it funded? Wow. Well, those are, those are big questions. It actually came about uh, because of what you were talking about before, and that is the growing inequality in this country and the uh, capturing of the government, particularly the Congress, uh, by wealthy interests uh, who succeeded in getting great tax cuts for the rich 
and leaving the minimum wage, for example, frozen at seven twenty-five an hour for a very long time. I wrote a book called Who Stole the American Dream back in 2012, and I was going around the country giving talks about that book, and people were asking me questions of what do we do about it, and I also was talking about the broken political system, uh, and I began at that point as I was going around the country to various states to begin to collect information about what was being done, the reforms that people were pushing for, uh, if you recall, the Citizens United decision yes. by the Supreme Court, yeah. which unleashed the floodgates, as Justice Stevens said, to uh, unlimited corporate and billionaire money and campaigns, had just been decided in 2010. So I was traveling the country in the wake of that, mm-hmm. and that caused a real strong counteraction uh, by lots of people in lots of states who were upset by the Niagara of money uh, inundating and flooding uh, the American political campaign. So that triggered the reform movement. That's really kind of where it began, uh, both out in the country and in my own imagination and in my experience as a reporter. So, you know, it, 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 I didn't really go looking for this story. Yeah. I stumbled into it. It was there. Uh, I was out uh, in the country. I'm a former foreign correspondent for the New York Times, so right. I'm used to getting out of the capital, used to going out uh, probing around the country, trying to understand the mood of the people, feel the pulse of the nation, and that's what happened. Sounds good. Now, did it take a lot of money to get this done? I know some... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I've made documentaries for PBS for over 20 years. Inside Gorbachev, USSR, Is Walmart Good for America? Ooh. Inside the Terra Network, you name it. I've done a bunch of them. Over that 20-year period, I raised $30 million on my own to fund it, uh, fund all those documentaries. In the case of this one, it's over a half a million dollars, and that does not come easy. So, yeah, I got it from, you know, major foundations, Rockefeller uh-huh. Brothers Fund, oh, good. Gaia Fund, uh, the Park Foundation, but it was slow work, I can tell you. Well, having been a candidate for federal office myself, raising money, mm, not fun, not fun. Uh, well, we've talked about, just briefly, the Supreme Court decisions, Citizens United, just about 10 years ago. The power of money in politics has increased dramatically, and that decision exacerbated an already very anti-democratic campaign system. It, it, what, what can we do about Citizens United? But and really, what's, what's amazing is what people have done. Uh, I'm, um, I'm, listen, I'm past complaining, and I'm past saying, what can we do? What right. I'm interested in as a reporter is what is actually being done. 20 states have now gone on record in one way or another, either by a vote of the legislature, by a combined letter to the Congress from the legislative leaders, or a popular vote, a referendum, have gone on record saying that the Congress uh, must reverse Citizens United. We must have an amendment to the United States Constitution, uh, which gives Congress and the states back the power to regulate campaign money. Uh, and it's amazing to me what's been done. I mean, I've, I've watched uh, ordinary people, folks who've never been involved in politics before except as voters, mm-hmm. started out as volunteers, organized campaigns, did it at the grassroots. I met a woman out in Seattle named Linda Bach. Linda Bach, <laughs> Linda Bach looks like a walking beer uh, barrel in a green T-shirt and slacks. Uh, she's chubby. She's friendly. Uh, she's folksy, uh, but she is a dynamite volunteer and organizer. She, in, in Washington State, they have referendums, and you can collect signatures. They uh. needed 
over 300,000 signatures to put the issue on the ballot of rolling back Citizens United. Linda Box single-handedly collected 21,000 signatures. I mean, utterly amazing. I said to her, you know, what motivates you? What drives you? She said, you know, I feel like I'm in the tradition of the American Revolution. I'm a modern Paul Revere. Every signature I get is a check for the U.S. Constitution. Democracy, you got to fight for it or it'll slip right out of your hands. So it's people like that that I ran into there in Montana, in Colorado, in California, in New Hampshire, all across the country. Uh, There is this, that's why I call it the Democracy Rebellion, there is a rebellious mood, a, a real anger and frustration that the politicians are not paying attention to the people and are rigging elections through gerrymandering, oh, yeah. too much money, vote suppression, and they're not going to fix it. We got to fix it. We, the people, we got to fix it ourselves. Well, that is some heavy lifting, and it sounds like that woman out in Seattle did some heavy lifting and hopefully makes a difference. Now, the Supreme Court has not gotten better. Uh, since the uh, uh, Citizens United decision in terms of possibly changing that. It seems highly unlikely. What might, uh, the mechanism for uh, uh, a constitutional amendment is really, that's some heavy lifting as well. Uh, How, is that, and and I know from past experience, when people are at the grassroots and they feel like they've accomplished something, it's like a drug. You know, it feels good. You want more and more and more of it. And more people have to realize that. I'm sure you came across that quite a bit. So, so how, how, what's the next steps for overturning uh, uh, Citizens United, and how... Well, you know, I, I, what's the next steps is you've got to get 14 more states uh, to join the 20 that have done it already. And, ah. you know, so this is slow, just as you said, this is slow, tough work. What's impressed me about it uh, is, is how committed people are and how, yes. how hard they will try. And we talked about Citizens United. Let's talk about another problem, yes, gerrymandering. Yes. You don't have that yes. in your congressional delegation in New Hampshire. You've only got two seats. You can hardly gerrymander yeah. the maps. But the state legislature has maps that are gerrymandered. Oh, my and goodness. Down yes. in Florida, it, it's acute. It's acute in many states around the country. By the way, gerrymandering movements around the country, they're in 27 states. Wow. 15 states have already voted in some kind of gerrymander reform, and it's moving in other areas. Florida was utterly amazing. It's a very Republican state, very yeah. conservative uh, Republican governor. But back in 2010, this was the sixth try. Five previous efforts at gerrymandering reform over the previous decade had failed. But in 2010, they, they put together a major coalition, and they, for the first time in any American state, they passed a constitutional amendment to the state constitution that said you cannot draw the election maps with the intent to favor one party or the other or to protect incumbents. No other state has been anywhere near that clear about blocking partisan gerrymandering where politicians try to keep themselves in office by drawing maps that are favorable to their campaigns. And then the Florida legislature defied the people and had a clandestine gerrymander, and the uh, League of Women Voters and Common Cause and Fair Districts Florida and the popular movement, uh, NAACP, Democracy, uh, Aura, uh, Hispanic organization, took them to court. took them three and a half years, but they got a ruling from the Florida Supreme Court that the Florida legislature, Republican-dominated, had been gerrymandering with unconstitutional intent and threw out all the state Senate districts 
and ordered the redrawing of eight congressional districts. Well, if you redraw eight, you wind up by redrawing about sure. 15. It has already had an impact on the makeup of the Florida congressional delegation. So, you know, it's slow, hard, right. steady work. It's like digging trenches. It's like growing grass. It's like <laughs> building a garden. I mean, it doesn't all bloom in one day. But people are working at it, and it's utterly amazing. 2018 was the best year for political reform in America in the past half century. That's since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So stuff is moving all over the country. Yeah, and I know from having been in the New Hampshire State Senate, the uh, the redistricting, it's its almost laughable how blatant it is to favor Republicans. It's, it's incredible. And I believe that nationwide, more votes are cast for Democrats for Congress, but because of redistricting, Republicans uh, often take the majority. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking with Hedrick Smith about uh, grassroots activism, grassroots rebellion. He's got a new document. Democracy rebellion. We need to get a name that, that rings and people know they can connect with it. Well, how does it go from being a movement to a rebellion? Sort of two different things. Well... It depends upon what a movement is for. This is a rebellion because this is people, average people at the grassroots, at the bottom of America, saying the people in power, the power elite, the power brokers, the power establishment uh, in South Dakota, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the two senators, the member of Congress, they're content with the status quo. They're going to protect the Republican majority. It's so gerrymandered out there that Republicans are about 45% of the state electorate, but they got 85% of the seats in the state legislature. <laughs> you know, and, and you can find that in one state after another. In fact, the gerrymandering in Indiana was so bad that the Republican leaders of the legislature said we got to fix it because they had 45 districts in which there was no Democrat who would even bother running because the maps were so stacked. So, you know, this is a, this is a bad situation. It's a rebellion because it's bottom-up. It's a rebellion in the same way that the civil rights movement was a rebellion. It was from people, you know, in Montgomery. It begins with the Montgomery bus boycott with with, uh, Rosa Parks saying, I'm not going to the back of the bus anymore. I'm going to ride where I want. I'm going to sit where I want. And, you know, the same thing was true in the progressive era, you know, back in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. Women wanted the right to vote. That was a women's rebellion. They were demanding the right to vote, and they finally got it in the progressive era. And we got direct election of senators, and we got Teddy Roosevelt busting the trust. So this is something that happens periodically in American history. People get fed up with concentrations of power, economic power, political power, with people holding monopolies. When you gerrymander a district, what you're trying to do is to eliminate competition. The whole idea of American democracy, the whole idea of the American economy is competition. This is not about whether or not Democrats are winning or Republicans are winning. It's about whether or not the people have a choice, whether or not the race is close enough, competitive enough, so that when you cast your ballot, it actually is going to influence the outcome. What you want, Hmm. what we want as people, as voters, are election districts where the margin of victory is 51-49 or 50.2 and 49.8. We want real close elections because that means everybody's vote counts. When you start to see elections where somebody wins by 60% or 70% or 85%, you know that's a stack deck. There's no competition. People on the other side won't run, and the voters don't really have any choice. The choice actually occurs 
in the party primary. And that happens next door to you. That happens in Massachusetts. The Democrats control it down oh, yeah. there. They do the gerrymandering. A lot of people think the Republicans do all the gerrymandering. <laughs> Not true. Democrats yeah. do it in Illinois and Massachusetts and Maryland. Once you get in power, the temptation is to stack the rules to keep yourself in power. <laughs> and what we want, and this is why it's a democracy rebellion, it's a rebellion for democracy. It's a rebellion for we the people. It's a, it's a rebellion for the average person, for the voter, and not for the people who are in power, regardless of which party they come from. Yes, and I, I want, you know, because it's not just liberals that care about this. I think, you know, there's a lot of anger on the right, but people have felt, as the uh, initial music to this uh, show played, the people feel that they're powerless. They've given up. They don't, and there must be, in this documentary, uh, The Democracy Rebellion, uh, victories that people can see because, you know, as I say, they, the, the powers that be have wanted us to feel powerless, and most people, I think, have, have given up. What, what are some of the victories that, that you can point them to? We've already talked about a few. Yeah, but let, let me, you got a great thought there. Let me just pick up on it for a moment, Bert. I, I've got a friend who works in the Southwest, um, Ernie Cortez. He's an organizer among Hispanics and Latino communities in Texas and Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California. He said to me at one point, you know, Rick, they say power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He said, well, powerlessness also corrupts. It corrupts uh -huh. democracy at the core. If we feel powerless and we treat ourselves as powerless, then we disempower ourselves. We yes. have to re-empower ourselves. We have to believe that we can make change. I'm telling you, the victories are amazing. Let's just take what I saw. I mean, what people are going to see when they watch the democracy rebellion, uh, what they're going to see is victories uh, on gerrymander reform, on public funding of campaigns, on voters' rights, on anti-corruption bills, on exposing dark money in state after state. Different issues, different states. Um, it's going on all over the place. They aren't simple. Sometimes they win a popular referendum right. and the legislature comes back, the powers that be come back, and they try to reverse it or they undermine it or they punch holes through it. And the people have to come back and fight again. This is going on in the South Dakota story that you'll see in our documentary. They, they passed an amazing referendum out in South Dakota for public funding of campaigns and setting up a state ethics board and stopping lobbyists from doing things and campaign contributions, that kind of stuff. And the legislature came back and said, nope unconstitutional, we're going to reverse it, we're going to overrule the voters. And back they went fighting again at the next election, and now they're fighting again in 2020. Sure. So the fight goes on. But, you, I mean, you're going to see people power. They're, I mean, it's just, it's utterly amazing. 2018, let me just tell you. Sure, sure. 2018, five states voted in gerrymander reform. Ohio, Michigan, Missouri, Colorado, and Utah. Three states voted in electoral law reforms. And listen to how different the states are. Maine, Florida, and North Dakota. Seven or eight states made it easier to register to vote. Same day uh, voter registration, you can go in and register on election day. Or motor voter registration, you're automatically uh, re-registered as a voter when you renew your driver's license or you make contact with some other state agency. Four big cities adopted public funding of campaigns, Baltimore, Phoenix, Denver, Portland, Oregon. Uh, there are now uh, some like 13 states that have joined the interstate compact to overturn the Electoral College and cast their electoral votes in favor of the national popular vote winner. You know, Maine adopted rank uh, uh, choice no. voting. That's Massachusetts is now gearing it up. It just got passed in, in New York City. 
I mean, it's this is this uh, there's ferment all over the country, Bert, and people don't know about it because the media is not reporting it. <laughs> the media reports it. You know, if it's in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire media will report it. If it's in Oklahoma or Washington State, the local media right. report it. But the national media is not telling you that something big is going on in the country. They're they're so focused. And understandably, it's a big deal, Trump and the argument over impeachment or the argument over Iran or the argument over environment and climate change. But that's not the total story of what's going on in America. I mean, what's going on out in the country is fascinating, important, and inspiring. I mean, I have to tell you, I've been reporting for five decades. I was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times in Saigon and Cairo, Moscow and Paris. I traveled and worked in about 30 or 40 countries. I'm blown away by what I'm seeing uh, at the grassroots in America as a reporter. It's, it's amazing what people are doing. And I think if more people knew the story yes. and if more people saw the Democracy Rebellion, not because it's my documentary, but because what you see other average ordinary people doing, by God, if they can do it in their state, we can do it in our state too. I mean, that kind of stuff, uh, that kind of feeling, that yes. kind of optimism, that self-reempowerment, it's uh. infectious. It's contagious. It really is, and it's so much fun. If you haven't done it, folks, you really ought to try it because there's nothing quite like that. You know, participating and knowing that this is what our founders intended, this is what America is supposed to be about, this is real democracy, and and winning some, it's great fun, really. It really is. And it, Well, and I can tell you, I mean, the people you'll see, you look at the people and, and, and you're going to say, there's my brother, there's my cousin, right. there's somebody like me, you know. I mean, I don't care who you are. You I mean, you're going to see it, whether you're white, black, young, old, uh, fat, short, tall, skinny, whatever. You're going to see people there, and, and, they're no, and they're people whose names you don't know. Right, These exactly. These are unknown Americans. These are common Americans on a common project, on a common mission to fix our common destiny. I mean, it's just... Uh, as a reporter, I got to tell you, it just it energized me. Yeah, it really is is energizing for a lot of people. And I forget who said this quote: "Politics and protest, both necessary, neither sufficient." You got to do both things. And I remember, you know, there was a lot of frustration. I have to say, I remember in the late '60s and early '70s, we had demonstration after demonstration against the Vietnam War. The crowds got bigger and bigger. Yet the war raged on. Many felt really frustrated. Uh, a few felt that nonviolent protests were ineffective and the SDS split and one faction being the weathermen, which actually bombed a few war-related targets. And that proved rather counterproductive, to put it mildly. There was the May Day 71 demonstration, which I participated in, using our bodies and wrecked cars to nonviolently block the centers of the war-making machine. What about nonviolent direct action? And And what about dare I say, general strikes. I mean, the people have the power if they can uh, just recognize it. Nonviolent direct action. What's well, it I, th- I think a lot of it depends upon what you're after. I mean, nonviolent direct action uh, was the, the operating mode of the civil rights movement. That's yes. the first movement I covered personally. In 1960, I was in Nashville when the sit-ins began. That was nonviolent personal protest, putting your body on the line. Yes. I was in Birmingham, Alabama with the dogs and the fire hoses and Martin Luther King. I was at the March that's on Washington. Yeah. I covered all those things. And those things did change America. They yes, changed they the law. Now, the important thing is they didn't change them right away. I mean, exactly. part of what I find interesting now is there seems to be an understanding among a lot of the people who are active 
that it's not going to be easy, that the results are not going to come right away, that even if we get beaten the first time, we go back and try again. Uh, we hang in there. There's a group out in, in North Dakota. You won't believe this. This is amazing. These are women over 70 years old. There Sounds are half powerful. A dozen that started them. They have a movement which they call themselves the badass grandmas of North Dakota. <laughs> and they decided there was too much foreign money coming into their campaigns. Yeah, the campaign money was too big. There was corruption. Lobbyists had too much power. There was a revolving door of people becoming state officials or state legislatures and then coming out and becoming lobbyists and make lots of money. So they put together an anti-corruption reform package, and they tried to put it on the ballot in 2018. And the politicians in North Dakota said, what are you doing? North Dakota, we're a clean state. You know, this is not Louisiana. This is not Boston. This is not Massachusetts. This is not New York. This is North Dakota. We don't need to clean up. And the lady said, no, you're wrong, guys. We need to clean up, and we're going to do it. And they did it. They put this thing on the ballot. They got enough signatures, and they won about a 55% majority. And when the legislature got in after they passed it, the legislature tried to punch holes in it. They took the legislature to court. I mean, it is... I mean, you almost have to laugh. It is utterly amazing. Yeah. When you, and these are one of the women who's the leader is a Republican, and the other one is a Democrat. Perfect. And there are a couple of independents involved. This is not partisan. That's the other thing I found out yeah. when I started traveling the country. This stuff at the grassroots is not partisan. It's not one party or the other. It's people on both sides. It's lots of independents. It's Greens. It's libertarians, as you pointed out. There are people on the right who are unhappy with this. Yes. Uh, I know a guy named John Pudner. He's one of the most effective right-wing Republican conservative campaign operatives I've ever met. He is a huge advocate of political reforms uh, to get money out of politics and to give people tax breaks for small donations and to encourage average voters. So this goes across the political spectrum. But if you watch Washington and you listen to the mainstream media, you wouldn't know that. That's true. I mean, I've got to tell you, you really do need to see this thing, the democracy rebellion. Seeing is believing. I mean, you've got to see the stories. You've got to see it happening. Yeah, we can be encouraged with that. Now, one thing I did want to ask about, you know, the Democratic National Committee last time kind of ignored the grassroots movement and crushed it and rigged it uh, with the superdelegate thing. And I, I hope that the DNC is is getting, being reminded that they work for us, we Democrats at the grassroots, not the other way around. Do you think the DNC leadership is getting that what they can they cannot repeat what they pulled last time by using superdelegates to crush the grassroots Bernie movement? This may be a little bit off from the topic, but I wonder if you have any sense of that. Yeah, well, it is a little off the topic, but let me address it. Well, in the first place, um, there, the superdelegates do not have a vote in the first ballot at the Democratic Convention. That's a good thing. Okay. So that, yes. that is one change that's been made. Now, if we wind up with a brokered convention, that is, if oh, you got boy. Bernie and Joe and, and Elizabeth and, and Pete and everybody uh, you know, still holding 20% or 15% or whatnot, and you get all the delegates split up, then yeah. you're going to go through the first ballot and there's not going to be a decision. Then the superdelegates are going to wade in. But they did make that reform. Yes. They took the superdelegates out, denied first them their ballot. vote, and they reduced the number of superdelegates. So they yeah. did hear it. But, you know, I think one of the problems here is not that the mechanics there. The mechanics are, are not unimportant. But the point is, the Democratic Party has been focused, and Democratic Party leaders have been so focused 
on the presidency yes. and on national Good election, point. Yes. that the Democratic Party has had its clock cleaned. The great Republican wave of victories in the 2010 election yes. uh, was foreshadowed by Karl Rove, the, uh, the Republican strategist for George W. Bush. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in October of 2010, and he said, look down ballot. That's where we're going to clean up. We're going after down ballot. And he pointed out, you know what they were after? They were after control of state legislatures, and they flipped control of yep. 17 state legislature, legislative bodies. And why did they do that in 2010? Because in 2011, those legislatures draw the maps. They do the uh -huh, gerrymandering uh -huh. for, the, for the legislative and congressional uh, election districts for the next decade. That's right. And they did exactly what you said earlier in the program. The Republicans lost lost the popular vote for the House of Representatives nationwide to the Democrats by a million and a half votes. They lost it. Let me underline that. But they got a 32-seat majority in the House of Representatives by basically having gerrymandered enough districts so they distorted the impact of the popular vote. So if people think this is just academic, wacko, <laughs> nerd stuff... <laughs> and it's not about power. They're missing the story. These efforts to change and fix and level the playing field in American democracy are absolutely critical to whatever issue you care about. Gun safety, immigration, health care, child care, you name it, across the board, they're all being affected by the gateway of fixing American democracy. And what's interesting is more and more people are coming to understand yep. this isn't just wonky academic stuff. This is about people power. This is fun stuff, and it's very optimistic. And we'll be talking about what happened in the 2010 election on the next uh, part of the show. Hedrick Smith, thanks so much. The show on PBS is the documentary is The Demo Democracy Rebellion. We can make it happen. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, and watch tonight on New Hampshire Public Television. It's all over the place. Thanks so much, Bert. Appreciate your interest. Have a great show. Thank you. Democracy is coming to the USA. It's coming through a hole in the air From those nads in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there from the war against disorder from the sirens night and day from the fires of the homeless from the ashes of the gay democracy is coming to the usa
Well, as we've been talking about, grassroots movements are about taking on, challenging the powers that be with the goal of replacing inattentive government with elected leaders who listen, listen and serve the people who so often feel left out. In the first part of today's show, we talked about grassroots movements. And as we have seen, grassroots activism is not solely from the left of the political spectrum, for sure. It can and does come from the right as well. The term populism is defined as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. Boy, does that fit. Ten years ago in America, just ahead of the 2010 elections, a new populist group, as our guest writes, the Tea Party, entered conservative politics with a splash in the 2010 elections. Oh, we all remember the establishment Republican Party stalwarts were caught off guard by this new grassroots movement. Now, we don't hear of the Tea Party anymore. Did they cease to exist or have they largely won? In 2018, Jeff Jacoby, the conservative columnist for the Boston Globe, quote, mourned its demise under the title, uh, the Tea Party is dead and buried and the GOP just danced on its grave. Now, to that, I and our next guest say, huh, not so fast. Uh, in a new article titled The Tea Party Revisited, Steve Hochstadt argues that he was a grassroots movement that was indeed outside established Republican politi political boundaries, but has actually won. To a large extent, they exercised a successful coup from the grassroots. As Professor Hochstadt writes, the Tea Party no longer needs to attack the Republican Party from the right. They are the Republican Party, and their desire to recreate our country in their image is non-negotiable. Rumors of their demise were, shall we say, premature. Our returning guest, Steve Hochstedt, is a uh, professor of history emeritus at Illinois College. He blogs for History News Network, which I love, and L.A. Progressive, and writes about Jewish refugees in Shanghai. Well, thanks for being with us again. What gave birth to the Tea Party? In what ways were they different from the regular Republicans in 2010? Hi, Bert. It's nice to talk with you again. I want to make sure our connection is good. You can hear me well. Oh, it's great. Yeah, solid. All right. Um, so I read these articles about the Tea Party being dead, and I just didn't think that they matched what I thought. Um, and so uh, I, I did a little more research about them. I wrote about them a lot in 2010 and 11 and 12, and not much lately because, just as you said, we don't hear them very much anymore. Um, I'll tell you what I realized, that these different conclusions, Jeff Jacoby says they're dead, I say they're alive, it's all based on how we think about the Tea Party plank of fiscal responsibility. No debt, get rid of the debt, balanced budget. It's how we think about that. Jeff Jacoby obviously took it really seriously, which is why he said it was dead, because they had not achieved anything like a balanced budget. Right. I think that they thought they wanted a balanced budget at the time, but what they really cared about right. uh, were the kinds of things that Trump is delivering, which is other parts of their program, anti-immigration, bordering on white supremacy, They've gotten that. Oh, yeah. I'm not 
I'm not sure bordering on white supremacy. I think it's it's almost open. It's like it's been there for a long time. It was there. Uh, well, the the grassroots uh, George Wallace movement of 1968 and 72, and uh, you know, kind of similar stuff. You know, uh, people who felt left out, and this whole populist thing, which is, uh, as I say, uh, defined as where did I find that here? Um, a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. They got the power now. I mean, Trump shook up the Republican establishment. Lord knows. And as you write, the Tea Party claimed to follow an ambitious agenda. And it was. It touched on both economic and social matters. Your research found two lists. One, the non-negotiable core beliefs. Another list of demands and objectives called Contract from America. So what about, let's look first at the economic items on that list. I mean, you know, there used to be these deficit hawks, uh, which seems consistent with Tea Party mans, but the deficit under Trump has ballooned almost beyond comprehension. And now these deficit hawks... And he still gets enormous rallies from, I think, the same people who supported the Tea Party 10 years ago. Yes. That's actually what we're missing here, what I wish I knew. Um, why I'd say this is somewhat of a guess, what I wrote and what you quoted from me, is that nobody's tried to figure out if Trump's rallies are former Tea Party people. What is the social overlap between the people who love Trump and the people who supported the Tea Party? I'd like to see that. Yeah. I, I would guess that it's virtually a hundred percent, but I, you know, that would be just a guess. I, I will confess I. That ha- was the guess I was making. <laughs> Same guess, but I think it's a guess. Yes, and I haven't been to any of those rallies. Great surprise. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it might be dangerous for someone yeah. like me. And yeah, but you know, the other thing you said. Um, so you quoted uh, what I wrote about. Uh, and also from the non-negotiable demand. Yes. that uh, That's what they said when they started, that their demands were non-negotiable. And I think that is something they haven't given up, uh, they haven't lost on, and I think it's one of the most dangerous ideas that they've got, that they have to have exactly what uh-huh. they say, which is quite extreme yeah. in American society, and they're not going to negotiate about it. And that is really the antithesis of democracy and democratic participation and a Republican form of government. It's, you know, forcing it from the top, authoritarian, which it's, it's odd how populist movements feed the fire of such things as as dictatorships i mean we've seen it in various places in europe with hungary and and lots of different places with the in turkey now lots of places and you know the economic stuff seems to be not well actually as you point out in your article the social scientist theta Scotchpole. 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 Thank you. Who studied Tea Party grassroots at the beginning dismissed their economic policies as window dressing. Was she right? Yeah, I. Uh, she was one of the few people in uh, at the beginning because she studied them right away and wrote that. She was one of the few people who said that. Um, and now I think it looks a lot more like she's right 
Uh, I, although, you know, I don't know, I'd say window dressing that window dressing is fake. Um, you know, I think True. those, True. I think people who went for the tea party in 2010 really did care about, uh, having a balanced budget, Yes, but balanced budgets, fiscal policy, that is not the way you make a mass movement. That is not what people get excited about, what they really care about. And so that's kind of dropped off. And now we have all the other elements. Uh, and if you, if you read those, those lists, yeah. they look like a wish for Trump. Mm-hmm. So it seems, and you know, the, 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 the category of social demands of the Tea Party uh, has moved from the fringes of the party to the mainstream of the 21st century Republican Party. So what are the, the social demands? Tell us that part of the agenda, please. Well, they're, they are very conservative about family. Abortion is must be banned. Um, they are conservative about racial issues. Yes. And they don't like programs which direct money to poor Americans. Although I think many of them benefit from programs like that. But there are specific programs that we talk about as welfare. Uh-huh. They don't like them because they thought, and I think still think, that undeserving uh-huh. people benefit from those programs. And that meant black people of color, yes. immigrants. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so they, they didn't like those programs. They love other government programs, Social Security. They love Social Security. Huh. Uh, and they loved it then, and they love it now. But, <laughs> but food stamps, food unemployment st- insurance, uh, those kinds of things they wanted to get rid of. I've always found it fascinating. You know, people on the right say, you know, to Bernie with the uh, Medicare for all, how are you going to pay for it? Well, they don't talk about that when it comes to the really expensive items, the uh, the military industrial complex, which is stronger than ever. And we're spending, what, $2 trillion on so-called defense? I mean, that's the real money. That's really building the deficit. But I think looking tough, maybe, is okay but actually helping people and, and serving what you say, the undeserved. I mean, at least the, uh, you know, the, the, the weapons manufacturers, they're not generally people of color and they're not immigrants. It's, it's odd to me, but I guess it is, you know, maybe it's related to the uh, old George Wallace movement, which is just plain, you know, white male domination. I think if you look at the whole uh, uh, evangelical movement, quite frankly, I mean, how they can overlook Trump's obvious moral failings uh, because it's really about white Christian male domination. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of scary, but they, they seem to be in power now. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And on this half, we're talking about uh, the Tea Party Revisited. Our guest is uh, Professor Steve Hochstadt. And uh, where they are right now, they're no longer on the fringes. They are in party. Now, in 2010, the Tea Party candidates at first appeared to be on the fringes. Then came the actual vote in November of that year. 
how did they do? And how did their scorecard look? How many are still in Congress, these Tea Party people who don't necessarily call them Tea Party anymore? Yeah, I, I was interested in that. I wanted to find that out because I thought that if I was going to say the Tea Party is alive, but they were all gone, then I, I was wrong. And so I, I, I looked at the I looked at the people who were called Tea Party candidates uh-huh. in 2010. Yes. And then I looked at where they are, the ones who won, and about a little less than half are still in Congress. Wow. And I thought. At first, that sounded like a lot, a lot of attrition, but that's normal, sure. actually, for Congress. They have tremendous uh, They have about the same attrition rate as everybody else in Congress. Yeah, and pretty much all I knew about Mick Mulvaney until your article was that he was Trump's acting chief of staff, the guy who revealed the smoking gun of Trump's quid pro quo in Ukraine. Now, even Mick Mulvaney has a Tea Party background. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, I I can't tell you very much about him, but I can say that there's a lot of people in government, uh, among, uh, especially among those that Trump has picked himself uh, for various jobs or that the people he's picked have picked, but there's a lot of people with Tea Party backgrounds. The uh, the people who the the candidates who were mocked in 2010, like Sharon Angle and yeah. Christine O'Donnell, they they they're not elected to anything, but they have good jobs in the conservative, I don't know, cultural sector. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And Mulvaney is a much better example uh, of someone who who is making important policy from those ideas. It is in gear, you know. And uh, what about, you know, if, if you look at what's often lumped together as the right wing, there are different factions of it. And what about the libertarian part of the fringe right? Were, were they ever a part of the Tea Party movement? And, and where are they now? That whole libertarian thing. It seems like there's a lot of people that, that you know, kind of subscribe to that uh, outlook. When the Tea Party started, they seemed a lot like libertarians. And they had close connections with libertarian groups because the tea, one of the Tea Party's uh, Ten Commandments was small government, get government out of our lives. Yes. Uh, and they... Uh, they have remained with that attitude, but only in certain ways. They uh, they love Donald Trump, who's made the federal government, uh, especially the presidency, more powerful than uh, anyone before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the great dangers he presents, but they love him. And so that was another one of their... Seeming beginning ideas, total freedom from government like libertarians, but in fact they've given that up, and they're they they weren't really libertarians. They really had other things that they cared about even more, uh, and those were social things. And I'm afraid yes. for a lot of them, those were race and gender. Oh yeah, 
And I must say that the people on the on the right and their social agenda seem especially freaked out at, at gay marriage and things like that. It's it's rather odd, and it, I think it says a lot about them and their own insecurities, but that's just my opinion on that. Now, I have been really, I've been consistently amazed that the Tea Partiers beat their chest claiming they swear a deep allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. I, what about that insistence? I, I I don't think they understand the Constitution. <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story? Please do. That article that uh, you've been quoting from got some comments on a website, uh, and one comment was by someone who seems to still be a Tea Party guy, uh, who said, "I was I was all wrong," and he gave some examples of things that uh, Tea Partiers said in 2010, uh, like uh, talking about the Muslim takeover, uh, Sharia law uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. And he was saying, here, look at these websites. It's true. Sharia law does dominate Dearborn. This is what he's saying to me now. And uh, I looked at all the websites he gave me, and I looked at other websites, it's a way of looking, his way is a way of looking at information that comes to conclusions that he already believes, uh-huh. and that the information that he's got right in front of him doesn't support. But it made no difference that I showed him this. Yeah, right. His belief is so firm that he can say it's non-negotiable. It, and those two things go together. The firm belief in the face of facts <laughs> and the non-negotiable nature of the demand in the first place. Yes, yeah, so it seems. And again, the Constitution, I, 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 you know, how can they keep saying, yeah, we're for the Constitution? They carry the Constitution around. Do they, do they this not? This guy was saying, this was another thing the guy was saying, that... The Constitution doesn't say anything about separation of church and state, because those words don't appear anywhere in the First Amendment, for example. And that's a weird interpretation. Uh, Courts for 200 years have interpreted that another way, but this is his interpretation, and he wants to send me to the Constitution so that I will learn that he's right. There's no talking with him or other people, whether they're Tea Party or Trump supporters, or that they are the main defenders of the Constitution. There's no discussing that with them. That is where they are. That is why they wave the flag. Yeah. That's why they wave the flag and say, we're the real patriots. We're the real supporters of the Constitution. We're the real Americans, and all the rest of us are screwed. Well, but then again, you have their fearless leader, Donald Trump, calling the press the enemy of the people. Hello, there's the First Amendment to the Constitution, which many of us think is one of the most valuable things. Freedom of the press, free speech. 
you know, how it's not a, a democratic leader who calls the press the enemy of the people. I mean, Thomas Jefferson thought it was, you know, extremely important to have a separate uh, independent press. And it's just so against the Constitution. And yet they hate the media. They don't trust the media. They in fact, you're right. Beliefs trump facts. Now, the Republicans in 2010 and 2016 won by mobilizing their activists on what was then seen as the fringes of the party. What about the Democrats? Why, why don't Democrats think they can do the same thing? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, energy there. Your thoughts? You know, I think it's, it's happening. Uh, I sure don't read about it very much yeah, uh, or hear about it on the news. So I, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, we all heard about the victory of Democrats in Virginia, the state level, in 2018. That was a really big news. Yes. And all the news outlets that I read, all the pundits that I read, they all talked about the demographic change of Virginia's population as the reason Democrats won. But I happen to be a member of a group of people for the American way. Ah, uh, yes. And they had been they had been in Virginia for years at the grassroots That's right. trying to bring out voters, trying to convince people about what the real issues were. And nobody they are one of the main reasons why Virginia flipped. Uh. But nobody talks about them. So I think there are those movements um, at the ground level among Democrats, liberals, leftists. We're not hearing much about them. Maybe I'm just uh, no. doing wishful thinking, Bert. That's what I think, though. Well, it's true. I think it, it can be shown that, I mean, it doesn't come easy. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, Americans want instant solutions. But you know what? In democracy, it doesn't quite happen that way. And I am old enough, just one final thing, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Rockefeller Republicans, the Bill Scrantons, the Everett Dirksons, Eisenhower, and many others. In 1964, their nominee, Barry Goldwater, was said to be far to the right. Today, he'd be considered left. In the New Hampshire State Senate, my colleagues were not Tea Party types or Trumpists. Does, you know, I've been out for 15 years. Has, does the future of the party depend now on the upcoming election? Will it swing back to actual conservatives, not, you know, radical right-wingers, if Trump does lose? Or do you think the party's firmly in the hands of the Tea Party faction? Your thoughts, please. I wish I knew the answer to that question, but, of course, even thinking about it depends on our wishful thinking that Trump will lose the election. Um, and not maybe true. my wishful thinking that it'll be a... A significant loss that might make uh, people who support the Republican Party think differently about where their party ought to, ought to be. Uh, I'd like that to happen. All of that to happen. Well, I'm a, I'm a I, deep... if I'm, I can't tell you if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. About it. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that, that grassroots, you know, the idea of democracy really can appeal to both left and right. But then again, maybe I'm entirely unrealistic. I have no idea. <laughs> but, uh, well, very interesting. We've been talking about uh, grassroots uh, movements. 
and how they can be really effective. Just a little bit of patience, a lot of long-term heavy lifting. It can work. Steve Hawkstead, thanks so much. Hope we uh, get you back on Keeping Democracy Again in the future. I'd love that, Bert. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. Thank you. Then use miseducation to rewrite creation De-Africanize the Sphinx and rewrite his facing Displace the racing, be quite complacent We living in the real District 9 Master race convince other people to dehumanize White power is against world peace They'd rather cut the world in pieces Let every European nation make colonies after natives defeated Monopolize every natural resource and bleed it White power is not freedom White power is the semen that implies dark-skinned people Inferior to light people The same demon that conquered and raped other cultures Got the children of the rapists thinking they better than their brothers So all around the world from America to the outback White power prefers we be without black. I got nothing but love for my Latinos. For Puerto Rico, why deny your heritage is Negro? White power is Spain conquering Asians, renamed Filipinos. Teach them to mistreat the indigenous, they call Negritos. But they really the same people. If you darker, you less equal. So you got lighter skinned Indians treated better than the darker. Same thing Brazil, Mexico, Jakarta. Black Cubans are so called just Cuban. When genetically you the same race that we all just human. White power is fooling you and not idolizing itself. Makes you a second class citizen while it takes your wealth. White power is self-hate and Stockholm syndrome. So as I knock on your dome, you are not home. Deception is the power that racial hatred devours. Cowards rewrote the history that is ours. Conquest is the sweet smell of a poisonous flower. The slave master is the savage in the final hour. Perception is what white power relies on. Racial division, the system to build lies. On. There is only one human race that exists. I reclaim the past when I raise my white fist. power is 41 million blacks trying to escape the ghetto. Crabs in the barrel to push make back pedals. Youngsters blast metal for iced out bezels. 13 year old girls in six inch stilettos. They may be exotic car brand of upscale apparel. But barely reading right on a fifth grade level. Blame they condition on some mythological devil. With red skin, two horns, and a pitchfork. Years, we bottom of the food chain Think white power did it on accident Use a new slave White power prefers the middle class Bear the brunt of the economy Pay lower wages to women and minorities Create quarantine pro Jim Crow Sit police dogs on children Cause we march for equality It's the war on crime The war on terror White supremacists who refuse to look in the mirror White power instigates black power and brown pride Locks them in prison and make sure that they collide Says the inner city ignorant but they the ones who taught us Says go back to Africa When they the ones who brought us White power wants more walls And more border patrol But white power stole the southwest from Mexico Hate immigrants But they all immigrated from Europe Neo-Nazis claiming they blood the pure
purest Her false race of superiority False sense of purity Cause all mankind came from little African pygmies So every genetic possibility is in me Blue eyes, blonde hair, arrogant, Asian, Syrian, Armenian But in the end, white power taught the world to despise the black man But still want his bitch with full lips, round ass and a nice tan Nice plan, see white power is conflicted it hates who it loves, it imitates who it denigrates to escape who it was Took her African religions in plain sight, man By the 1500s, Jesus Christ became a white man And when it suits his gold, have you on the front line fighting White power's the MC who keeps switching his hype, man Sri Lanka versus India, Tusi versus Hutu Palestinian versus Jew, nigga, you too Perception is the power that racial hatred devour